Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. I'm Rachel Moss, the host, and this is my co-host, Mike Heitman. You can learn more about our podcast at www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. <laughs> Welcome back to another edition of Opera Unbound. Today we are talking about something that is extremely important to this whole process of being an artist and putting on a show, and that is this thing we call staging. Staging essentially is the choreography, quote unquote. It's basically the idea that we want to all be on the same page as the director of the show, the conductor, and all the performers. We have to be on the same page. Otherwise, this thing just goes awry really, really quick. Yeah, it's like a roadmap for the show. Exactly. Yeah, so that we know when things are happening approximately. And depending on, especially the conductor or the stage director, this is more and more micromanaged or not. Uh, And so today we are going to talk about the various preparation strategies and things that we go through in the staging process as a soloist, a chorister, which is actually slightly or massively different depending on the company that you're working with what the conductor has to do, and also as a stage director. And so I'll have Rachel kick us off by talking about what you do as a soloist in the staging process. As a soloist, when before you arrive for your first staging rehearsal, at this point, all of your music has been learned and memorized, and your character is already developed. And before you go into staging, you have music rehearsals with with the coach, with the conductor, to go through the music so that when you get on the stage, stage it's all about the blocking of individual scenes and making your actions on stage read let me explain what blocking is and blocking is moving from point a to point b on the stage so i might say you're going to enter from stage right and you're going to move to downstage left you know between this measure and this measure and sometimes it's broken up in those exact terms or sometimes they say you just need to be here by this point in the music. So that's what blocking means. In operatic acting, it's unlike what you see on TV and in movies because some of your audience members are very far away from you, but you still have to make it so that your communication, your body shows the emotions and it can read from that far away. Movie acting and TV acting can be more subtle. It can be just a a slight facial expression and that's enough for viewers to understand what your character is going through, but that's not enough when it comes to being on stage. 
So the first day you're going to arrive in the room and the director will be there. Sometimes your conductor's there, but not always. They have other things to work on. And your director is going to have an explanation of their vision of the show and they might share some visuals with you. And you'll usually work on one, maybe two scenes at max in your first rehearsal. And depending on the size of the role you're playing in the show, you could have rehearsal every day or you could be there two times a week. I find that large companies will work really hard to make it so that you're not sitting around a lot around the opera house. They they try to schedule you as efficiently as possible. And that's not to say that smaller companies aren't able to accomplish this, but they don't have the plethora of staff to make that as easy for them to handle. It's really important for you as a soloist to keep track of your stage directions. At larger companies, yes, there's usually a um, assistant stage manager who is writing down all of your staging, but it's really important for you to either internalize it or make sure that you write it down in your score. Personally, I have a very good memory and I'm able to internalize actions that I have to make on stage within two or three repetitions. I always write down my entrances and exits off of the stage and I usually write down when a prop is involved just because I want that to be, I want that to be very set in my memory so I don't forget. A lot of large movements throughout the opera will be blocked, as it said, whereas like gestures that you make or smaller movements you're more allowed to improvise. And it all depends on your director and their vision as to how similar that may be to what is in the score or not. Some scores have a lot of information given to you about your individual character. That's not always true. I'm going to be talking, of course, about what the director does, so I'll save some of my comments for that. But going back to the two things that I wanted to talk about was, one, when you show up you said that everything should be developed. I think that as the way you see the character, I think that that's very valuable. However, the whole opera world is a collaborative place. And at the end of the day, there are two people who are your bosses. There's the stage director, and more importantly, especially during the performances, it's the conductor. So you need to have ideas for your character, but obviously be amenable to the things that the the stage director has to say. Absolutely, you should. And what I mean by developed is that you should have a clear understanding of who your character is and their journey throughout the opera. That doesn't mean that it's set in stone by any means, just yeah. that you you have that going in and that you're just not showing up like, yes, I know the music and I know what my words mean. And I know how the story goes, but I don't have any idea about how events affect my character throughout the story. Yeah, because the director has way too much going on to spoon feed you everything that your character needs to know. I mean, the only time that might be okay, and if this was going to happen, you probably would be getting emails prior to the rehearsal is, and I'll talk about this later too, is when a director has a specific concept that that the person's going for which may mean that all the other things you've seen in this particular role either don't apply or only tangentially apply. The other thing I was going to say 
was you were talking about how things are in the score about your character. One thing that often happens in the editions that we have is that these notes that we have about the characters aren't necessarily from the composer. <laughs> They're from a particular production or a t- particular thing that the person writing the libretto or putting the thing together did. Or even you could go so far as to say, well, this is what's traditionally done. It's, it's always important to, even if you don't personally own uh, a critical edition of the score, it's good to try and find a copy and at least look at it. Like I said, it depends on the composer and how much they choose to dictate in the score to you. Yeah, so I guess what the end of what I'm trying to summarize is it's like when you go to college. What are you there to do? You're there to learn and become educated. And when you show up to a rehearsal and throughout the rehearsal process, you're learning what the director wants, but you come in with education behind you. Like, like you said, you know, this is what the character theoretically, for the most part, is. This is how they feel about X, Y, and Z. This is their journey and all that stuff. You can't show up flat-footed. Because here's the other side of it that doesn't necessarily have to do with staging, but it really has to do with real-life situations that I'm sure have happened to you, but definitely happened to me, is that we are human beings and we screw up all the time, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And yes. the the only time I don't really get nervous and that's not because I think I'm, you know, this amazing performer or whatever. It's because I've done the work. I know, especially now that it's happened, unfortunately, so many times that I screw up on a regular basis <laughs> that I know I can get out of it. And the reason I can get out of it without it being too much of a train wreck or even a train wreck at all to the audience is because I'm prepared. And I think that's the beautiful part about doing live performances. I mean, yes, the rush you get from being on stage and doing a live performance and the feedback that you get, the energy you get out of the room when there's an audience there is fantastic, but it's also, in a way, fun when things don't go as they're supposed to, and you have to think on your feet and figure out how to get out of the situation without it being a total mess. Oh, totally. And if you're a person who knows the show and is in the industry, it's just so much more fun when you're like, oh, that one prop busted. Oh, this will be this will be interesting. (laughs) So a quick story about this. And it's one of these memories from my time at Seattle Opera that I'll never forget. So we were doing Countery, and we're in the one of the big scenes with all the men, and it's when we're nuns. And during the baritone's aria, there's this like sweeping move where basically the whole male chorus is following him around the front of the stage and then back up stage. And we had these tables that were set up by us as we were entering, but one of them was not set up correctly. You see where this is going. So we're coming around and we're like quasi running following him. And one of the chorus members was supposed to dive onto this table and then prop up and like watch all animatedly the the baritone that's singing. And since, again, it wasn't set up correctly, he goes to jump on it. This whole entire thing collapses. We have fake apples everywhere. 
We have bottles that are busted, you know, and all of us on stage were like, oh, no. And we're like trying to still sing and do these things and also make sure that our colleague is okay. Yeah. And it was since it's a comedic show anyway, it was kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, So as an audience member, you might have been thinking, wait, was this was this planned? (laughs) Because what is going on? Uh, preparations, everything. But yeah, like you're saying, uh, live theater, when it goes really badly or like gets off kilter, is honestly probably more exhilarating in certain aspects. Yeah, yeah, um, certainly can so, be. anyway. Okay, back to staging. This is all happening usually without music. Music isn't added for the first couple of staging rehearsals because they really just want you to get the movements down and in your body. When they do start adding music, Music, some things that do you'll have to do dance or fight calls and I haven't done many fight calls we did one when we did the production of of Carmen for the ending mm-hmm. but I've, I've had to do quite a few dance calls for when I did Mrs. Lovett I had not necessarily straight up dancing but Mrs. Lovett does a lot of very choreographed things. Her whole first aria is very choreographed when she's making the pies. And then Mm -hmm. when you do the duet, a little bit of priest, that usually involves a dance. And then, God, that's good. Depending on your production and how the stage is set up, I was running up and down this set of stairs like five or six times. That was a workout. (laughs) And then roles like Carmen are going to require um, dance calls, depending on the production, because really, depending on how traditional it is, if if you're actually going to do part of the Segadia dance when you sing that duet um, during the Bohemian dance scene um, that has its own dance when you do the castanets, all of these things have to be choreographed. And honestly, it helps you as as a singer because instead of having to like try and think of what to do, you know, when you're singing these arias and trying to plan it out yourself, it's really nice to have someone who's gone through and choreographed it and given you um, a parameter to, to work within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fight calls can be used for, yes, sword fighting, for fist fighting but sometimes it's also used for things that we don't necessarily think of as fights like the ending scene between Don Jose and Carmen we don't necessarily think of that as a fight that has to be planned and you have to make her death look real spoiler Mm -hmm. alert she gets stabbed in in the traditional setting yeah totally I've done a few fight calls and I think aside from you want everything to look real of course in fight calls also the dance calls you want everybody to feel comfortable and safe when it's done exactly correct there's nothing more satisfying than that but when it's just slightly off it's like oh that could have been so much better (laughs) yeah um I did Girl of the Golden West. I had to, you know, punch out this one guy, essentially. And we had to go over it every single time. Because if you are off inadvertently, you can really hurt somebody. You know, oh, yeah. you got to make it look real. And as far as dance calls go, I'm about as white as you can possibly define when it comes to these dances. I mean, I need every single dance call I can possibly have to make these things look remotely good. So I am so <laughs> grateful for them. Uh, another quick story. So when I was in college, I was doing The Merry Widow, and I was Donnie Lowe. And The Merry Widow, one of the famous scenes, there's basically two main ones. There's the Velia aria, which is by um, Hannah, the main soprano. And then there's The Merry Widow Waltz, 
which is for Donilo and Anna or Hana, depending on how you want to say it. Well, like I said, I'm Mui White and not dancely gifted. That's not even a term, but I'm going with it anyway. And so the person who is playing Hana, she and I would literally waltz down the hallway at school two or three times, like two afternoons a week, and just go and waltz down the hall for like 15 or 20 minutes because I was that atrocious at it. (laughs) It still didn't look amazing by the end of it, but it was a Definitely a lot better than it would have been otherwise. Were you in the dance thing for Beatrice and Benedict? Yeah, yeah, I was in them. Yeah, yeah, that that was a lot of dancing that took me. I, I mean, I think I finally felt comfortable. Maybe the last, like the last public dress. To where I was like, okay, uh, I don't even have to think about this anymore. I, I'm actually pretty good at dancing, but... Well, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> you you can... <laughs> If if we're ever dancing together in a show, you can lead me and try to not look like you're leading me. How about that? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll definitely do that, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, the next step in the process is adding the music into the process will solidify the timing of actions on stage. Necessary adjustments will have to be made. That just has to do with spacing. And sometimes you just don't realize how either short or long musical interludes are when you're staging without music and usually add in props shortly after doing the music props are imaginary up to this point that can affect things for you as a character because you don't realize exactly how cumbersome some props are going to be personally i don't have a desire to play suzuki and madam butterfly for this reason she's a housemaid in the opera and so most of her time on stage is moving around pillows lanterns this and that Mm -hmm. and i just she's she's a props manager (laughs) (laughs) it's rather thankless Mm -hmm. she gets to sing beautiful music nothing i mean it's it's a great opera i just i'll pass (laughs) props are a fun but also like i think cumbersome is a really great adjective that you put in there like all the times that i've had to use swords you're like oh yeah you're just like walking on like nothing when you don't have them then you put them on you're trying to not hit yourself in sensitive areas depending on how loose they are and you're running on and like have you ever had to wear any sort of robe or anything on stage oh i guess you did because you were a nun yeah yeah those well those weren't too bad actually they were just really hot Mm. no pun intended um (laughs) (laughs) although that scene was pretty hot it was hilarious. Yeah, it was a gr- it's a great opera. Yeah, I uh, I haven't had to do anything like that. So that's something too is when you add the costumes, depending on how your costume is constructed, can really change your movement on stage. And oftentimes, opera houses have rehearsal skirts for women. Honestly, all skirts are different, and sometimes you know I I don't bother wearing a rehearsal skirt most of the time because it it never replicates the skirt I'm usually wearing on stage. Mm-hmm. And God forbid you have something with a huge train and you just have to keep track of it the entire time and try to not trip over it yourself and not trip your colleagues. Mm-hmm. This kind of covers your first two to three weeks. It all depends on the company and and their schedule. Uh, most companies try and keep the staging process to two to three weeks. 
I've been at companies that it was longer, kind of as challenging as a performer. You don't want the show to feel overbaked before it gets to, to opening night. So the last two weeks, you have a lot of room runs and then you move to the stage. I think a lot of companies really try to have a rehearsal space that is as big as their stage, but it's not always possible. So there are, again, adjustments made when you get on stage for spacing and timing. And that really covers the staging process as it as it is from a soloist standpoint. Yeah, well, the only thing I would add to that, too, is sometimes you actually don't get the luxury of two weeks of staging. You know, I've done a lot of outreach tours, which you're lucky if you get a full week. And then you're out mm. performing, you know, for kids. That can be a blessing and a curse because <laughs> there's a lot of things that they don't believe. And I've been called out for things, but that's a different story. <laughs> I love how honest children can be. It's great. Yeah, but at the same time, they've only seen so much in their lives. It's it's kind of maybe good that the, you know, the first week of shows can be quite rough. I mean, you get a skeleton of how the show is supposed to go and hopefully it's cohesive to a certain extent by the by the end of staging and then it really forms really that first week cuz again, you're adjusting to different spaces. Basically, everybody has got to be collaborative and you got to be able to adjust to just about anything. You you are a cog in a machine, but it's a machine that's always evolving. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, we're, we're going to talk, probably be rather short, talking about being a chorister in, in productions. In a lot of ways, it's similar to being a soloist. You have blocking without music, dance calls, fight calls, and the process of adding prop costumes is is the same. The things that are different is depending on the company you work for, and usually particularly if you're AGMA slash an employee rather than an independent contractor, if you're under an AGMA contract, you're not required to learn the music on your own. You learn it and you're not supposed to do it outside because it would be doing your job off the clock is how it's been explained to me. You learn the music during your music rehearsals. So that's just one thing that I think is a little bit less stressful for choristers in a way because they're not required to have, like I said, if you're in an AGMA contract, you're not required to have your music memorized by the time you show up to the first musical rehearsal. And then depending on the company and how, what their vision is or the director, they don't necessarily require that you have any sort of individual character development. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you um, feel like like furniture or wallpaper instead of a character but you know it happens yeah <laughs> it's true though because we've all been in those productions yeah we have you can also maybe look at it this way are people really paying hundreds of dollars if you get the really close seats to watch the chorus like that's their big draw is the chorus no, it's not. True, but it, it flushes out the story, builds the atmosphere. It's a very, very important element to the show. Oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not discrediting the chorus. I'm just saying that we can be a little bit circumspective, and I am not the most important person on the stage. They're not paying to see, yeah. to see me. So it's okay if I don't Absolutely. have as much on require, quote-unquote required of me, even though, let's be honest, the skill set for a chorister is no different than a soloist. It's just one has a more important role and sings more, usually, Absolutely. than uh, than the chorister. The way I look at working as a chorister versus working as a soloist is that you're not necessarily given individual directions for specific tasks, although you may be. You may 
may be more choreographed mm-hmm. um, in your actions or told, yes, you're going to go pick up this prop and bring it to this point. But a lot of the show, they're going to say, okay, we need these individuals to be over here on this part of the stage and these individuals to be over here. And that's it. Like they might yeah. tell you, you, you're at a party, so enjoy yourself. You know, make it look like you're having a conversation or that you're tired. You know, you've been drinking all night. Just that's about as much direction as you're given sometimes. Yeah. It really depends on your, your director and how, not in a negative way, how much they want to micromanage the show. Yeah. And also their vision of how much. This is going to come off maybe the wrong way, but I'm going to say it the way it is, that I want to say how much they actually care about how the chorus work. We talked prior to uh, recording is that as a chorister, yes, you need to obviously have some kind of an idea of who you are as a person in the scene that you're in. One of the things about the director not giving you a ton of specific things is that you're free to do what you want, but your job then becomes don't stick out too much unless Mm -hmm. they give you Mm -hmm. a specific time to stick out as a chorus member. If you wanted to, you could be a different person in every show you were in, like within a production, right? If you have nine or 10 performances, you could choose to be your character and just change it slightly each night Mm -hmm. in its mannerisms, or you could choose to be completely different personalities every night and as long yeah as long as you're not distracting from what the important focus on stage is it really doesn't matter yep and that's freedom (laughs) yeah i mean that's what's kind of fun about it as a chorister you get to do a bit more improving in that in that sense totally all right why don't we uh move on we're going to talk about the uh conductors and the stage directors now i'm going to kind of briefly go over the conductor stuff just because like i said earlier they are the buck does stop with them when the show is really going because many of you may not know this once the final dress rehearsal ends the show is set and then a lot of times the stage director sticks around for what opening weekend and then they're out even if the show goes on for six months they're out they got other important shows to direct the conductor is kind of the head honcho i just want to briefly go through these because i i I think talking about the stage director is a little bit more important. So obviously as a conductor, you need to know the usual things about the piece that you're doing. The composer and their style, what period it's from, have a basic idea of the storyline and what's happening in each scene. And how you go about that other than reading about the show is, of course, to listen to recordings. I know a lot of singers are like, well... Don't learn your role from recordings, which there's a lot of value in that sentiment because there are recordings out there with really famous singers that have errors. Either they may not be massive, but they are errors. And if you memorize those, then you have to unmemorize them, which honestly is really, really difficult. One of the things you can do from listening to recordings is you can learn what is the approximate tempo of a lot of these pieces. Some conductors are notoriously known for being on the more brisk side of tempi, and others are not so much. You can get an idea of potentially how much room you have to play with. Now, Some of you might be wondering, so, okay, so the stage director is in charge of a lot of different things. It's kind of their concept. Why, then, is the conductor the most important person? It's really about the their job, when all is said and done, is coordinating upwards of hundreds of people all at once. Because like we said with staging, the whole idea is you need to have everybody on the same page. 
Well, the conductor is quality control in a lot of ways, uh, and making sure that everybody is is all together, so you have the best show as possible. Sure, them and behind the scenes. Let's not forget about our oh, stage managers. Oh, totally. Those glorious people. <laughs> yeah, you know, you mentioned that you might have a an assistant stage manager writing down your blocking. This is mm-hmm. really really important because you can be, for example, having a really bad day in your personal life, and you forget to go on stage at the right time. You're gonna have your stage managers. I guess especially at big houses, they'll have calls, uh, Mr. So-and-so to stage right. And they'll call you with plenty of time to get there. And then if you're not there, then they'll call you again. They have their book there with all the different notes in it. So they're extremely, extremely valuable. And the other thing I'll say about conductors is they're a lot like stage directors in the sense that they have their egos too and their experience. The the conductors that I have found to be the ones that I want to work with more and more, obviously they're cordial and they're human beings, if that makes sense. It's really easy sure. in this business, especially if you are a person like a conductor, because you do have a lot of responsibility and people have to answer to you and you have to answer to the higher ups, right? You can get a really big, big ego, so it's really great when they are down-to-earth kind of people they are highly collaborative and just trying to find the best product possible you could be the most intelligent or most skilled musician out there but if you're a pain in the ass to work with nobody's gonna want to work with you so right uh, and it's incredibly important for a conductor to have good communication skills not just in their conducting but throughout the rehearsal process oh totally that's one thing i i don't know if you're like me rachel but sometimes when i watch a conductor conduct a symphony or whatever i'm sitting there like this guy is speaking a language to these musicians that i i can't even follow Uh, what is this weird hand movement like what does that even mean where uh, you know but apparently it works for them it sounds great he probably maybe he even explained it in the rehearsal process and i wasn't there for that video time some of these conductors it's like what are you doing dude i don't even get it there definitely is a a difference in orchestral conducting and choral conducting and when you work in an opera house you kind of have to marry the two you have to not just rely on orchestral conducting techniques you have to add to your wheelhouse vocal conducting techniques, which usually come out of choral, um, so that you can effectively communicate. And the way you give cues, too, are are slightly different, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you got to learn how to make it work with all your different experiences. Okay, so finally, the stage director, and this is the one I have the most fun doing, as many of you know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now, one of my passions is rewriting shows, and the way that I rewrite shows is I'm obviously rewriting them and uh, modernizing them and all that stuff, but I'm thinking as a stage director, too. It's a really fun process being a stage director. So when you're a stage director, your number one thing that you have to do is be able to have a clear vision and be able to sell it and defend it because you have to sell it, especially if it's a a non-traditional take, you have to sell it to a company and eventually you're going to have to sell that to the performers, which then you and them are going to have to sell it to the public, right? In order for it to be a success. So... I guess you're right. I never thought about uh, stage directors being salesmen. Yeah. The number one thing you have to do is obviously do your research. You have to know about the, the source material, if it's something like it's from a book, right? Or if it's mm-hmm. the Tudor operas, right? It's about real people, you know, Queen Elizabeth 
and Mary Stewart and all this stuff. You have to know things about the the real people's life. Or if it's about a particular era, like Porgy and Bess. If you're not African-American, for example, you may not know as much as you should know. Let's at least put it that way about what it was like being a slave and things in the South during that time period. And so you need to know as much as you can about that. Then once you know all of that information, you need to make a choice. And that is, do I do a traditional production or do I want to do something new with it? And if I'm going to do something new with it, how extreme is that newness going to be? For example, two of the shows that I've done, I'll talk about two of them. One is Don Giovanni and one was, I called it the Real Housewives of Sparta, which is based off of Offenbach's La Belle Hélène, which we talked about before. So what I did with Giovanni was I wanted to update it. When I was writing it, there was a big debate in our in our country about campus rape culture so i said it on campus you had to think about okay how are these characters going to adapt to that setting versus what they do normally rachel played the commendatora who was the dean of students in this show whereas in the real show the commendatore is Donana's father that is a modern take but it's really not that far off like i i really aside from the language itself the storyline was kind of the same Whereas, yeah. oh, totally. Yeah, whereas The Real Housewives of Sparta, it's it's one of those where if it was a movie, it would be like based on real events or based on a movie or based on a book by blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's basically what it would be. So I took the La Belle Hélène is based off of the Greek mythology of Helen of Sparta and Paris. And instead, mm-hmm. I made it where all the female characters in the show are basically doing the reunion episode of The Real Housewives of Sparta. And Aelen, or Helen, is retelling her journey and how she's with Paris now. That's a very different take compared to what is initially. Then, once you figure that all out, again, you gotta sell it. So you get your concept. Now, sometimes your concept could be simply switching the time period, switching the place, or it could be a very, the term I'm thinking of just slipped my mind. Were you in Maria Stuarda, Rachel? I can't remember. I wasn't. Okay. No. Well, one of the things that the stage director said was we wanted to have varying angles and some other kind of movement. So everywhere we went, we had to be constantly at an angle looking at somebody and our paths, how we watched, couldn't be straight line. Oh. You know what's interesting about that is that's a, a tenet of Baroque dance, always being in oh. contrast or juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about that those are the the big things as a stage director that you got to really figure out before you even come to the first rehearsal and like rachel mentioned in the first rehearsal sometimes you'll see like pictures and all that stuff well if this production has gone other places obviously they have source material right for those pictures they or you'll have blueprints of the stage and maybe some of the costumes and so all this stuff comes at that first meeting now this is from a director's perspective it's extremely helpful to obviously as i've mentioned multiple times have collaboration but it's not just collaboration it's also discussion because at the end of the day there needs to be a person to make a decision (laughs) right so 
one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes is there are pieces that are very charging, like politically charging or racially charged yes. or sensitive. Mm-hmm. So you have to talk about those things. And I think that the best time to do that is the very first rehearsal. You also, mm-hmm. in a lot of shows, have romance and, and potentially sex or nudity on stage. And so you have mm-hmm. to talk about those things and you have to talk about them in an open and honest way while also making sure that nobody feels like they aren't being heard because everybody's level of comfort is going to be different there are some people they have no problem taking their clothes off on stage and doing all kinds of stuff and there are other people who they're very hesitant for whatever reasons it could be religious it could just be personal it could be whatever kissing people or being fondled or sure and so you have to have those conversations again like we talked about earlier with children the audiences they have a bs meter that's pretty good (laughs) so if you have two people that are supposed to be romantic on stage and you clearly can't feel it (laughs) It's going to be pretty obvious. And that all plays into this staging process that you can have the best product at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. As an artist, I really appreciate it when uh, directors are open to having discussions about things in the show or your character. It's it's nice to feel valued in that way because sometimes you don't always have that luxury. Sometimes you have directors and they just, this is the way I want it done, bop, bop. And that's it. They don't really leave room for you to have input. Yeah, I I really value the input. I'm... I'm sure you heard me say it multiple times because I think as a director, it's one of my isms. (laughs) I would often say, look, I love the collaboration or the input because I don't have all the great ideas. I have quite a few of them, I think. Mm-hmm. but I don't mm-hmm. have all of them. So let's all yeah. work this out together. Uh, and, you know, there's been lots of times where I had something written and it was either clumsy or there was just mm-hmm. something that was funnier. Like one of the things in our production mm-hmm. of Giovanni that Rachel and I did was in the catalog aria and the guy playing Leporello, he had a really good way of saying what I already had in there and it stuck mm-hmm. and it made it so much funnier and also so much more disgusting. <laughs> where, yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, we all want to put on the best show we can. Yes. I think that wraps up uh, talking about staging, the staging process. If you feel like we missed anything, please leave us a comment. Let us know. And if you have a a story you want to share about uh, a staging moment that you had that was funny or that was challenging, we'd be interested to hear about that too. On top of that also, if you really enjoy what we're putting out stuff pretty much every couple weeks, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast or get, you know, get our podcast and definitely share it with your friends because if you don't already know this, there's a lot of things, especially on YouTube and all that stuff, you know, because of the algorithms, you may or may not see our content as much as, of course, we would like, but um, maybe not as much as you would like. And the way that you're able to game that and help other people see our content is by directly sharing it to Facebook or whatever. Just make sure if you really like what we're doing, then and sharing our videos or whatnot is the best thing that you can do. Sharing is caring. Yes, it is. You know, we're both old enough to uh, to know what be kind, rewind means. <laughs> There's a reference. <laughs> oh, man. Well, technically, I'm I'm technically an old millennial, so that means you're definitely a millennial. Yeah. But even some of our young yes. millennials may not even know that reference. Right. So. Yeah, I'm trying to think... 
I'm trying to think the last year or maybe the first time I got a DVD instead of a, a VCR cassette. Oh, geez. Mine uh, was in the late s- 90s, I think. That's what I'm thinking. It had to be like 98 or 99, possibly 97. No, I feel like 97 was probably still VHSs. Yeah. Now I'm going to go look it up. I'm interested. Anyways, that's the end of our episode. <laughs> All right, we will see you all later, and definitely check us out on Instagram. We'll be posting what we're working on next. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts and requests, so leave us a comment below. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. You can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as $3 a month. Like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on Instagram at Opera Unbound to stay updated. Ciao!